So today we're wrapping up uh, what we've called our Distinctives series. We've been taking, as most of you know, first five weeks here in 2021 to focus in on what we think of as being sort of core values or core elements that make Covenant Shreveport Covenant Shreveport. And today we come to the last one of those. And, and honestly, I would say the least of these as well. These are not necessarily in any order of priority or importance, um, but today we're talking of, about the fact that we're an elder-led church, which is not unimportant by any stretch of the imagination. It is one of our five distinctives. But when you think about the things we've talked about over the last few weeks, like being a family on mission, being gospel-centered in our lives, uh, being discipleship-focused in the everyday, and we've talked about the way we worship, uh, the, the fact that we're a somewhat liturgical church that's seeking to worship God in a variety of ways. When you think about all the things we've talked about, when you start talking about how the church is structured or governed, it just seems to maybe pale a little bit. Um, and so I, I understand if the tendency now is to want to you know, get comfy so you can fall asleep. But this is, I think, incredibly important. And so we're going to dig into it today. Uh, this will be the last week of this. And next week, we'll go back to kind of business as usual, which is uh, to walk through whole books of the Bible. We've taken a little bit of a detour to refocus here at the beginning of the year. Um, but next, we're going to jump into another series where we are walking through entire books. And I say books, plural, because what we're going to be doing is a series called The Hidden Prophets. And we're going to be walking through the part of the Bible that you either know very little about or know absolutely nothing about. And that's the section of the Old Testament that's known as the Minor Prophets. Um, so there are 11 Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, and they're called Minor Prophets not because they're not important, but because the books that are attributed to them are incredibly short. So we're talking about people like Amos, Joel, Jonah, Obadiah, Haggai, Malachi, um, people whom from, from many followers of Jesus, people who've grown up in the church, if I were to ask you, hey, what happens in Haggai? Most people would be like, I'm not really sure. And, and it's not only that we don't know these stories or understand what's going on in these books. We know Jonah. That's probably the one we're most familiar with. The bigger issue is we're not sure that we can explain why they're even important. Why are they in our Bibles? Why does it matter that they're in our Bibles? What difference does that make for us? So we're going to be digging into all 11 of those books uh, as we get into our next series. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that will begin next week. So today, as we talk about what it means to be a, uh, an elder-led church, we're really trying to answer two questions. First of all, the most important question is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And then secondly, what does that mean to us? How do we interpret that? What do we do with that? And, and I want to be humble and generous today as we approach this topic, because I don't want to imply by any stretch of the imagination that we've got this all figured out or that there are no problems. Um, what I found is that in every single church, no matter how things are organized, no matter how things are led, no matter how things are governed, there are always problems. And the problem most often is not necessarily the structure itself. It's the fact that we are all sinners, like we are all sinners in need of a savior. So no matter how great or how biblical or how well-formed the structure is, it's still being led by people who are sinners. 
It's still being led by people who fall short of the glory of God, myself included, Justin included, any other future elders that will come onto this team included. Um, So our goal in claiming like a particular form or structure of governance is to do two things. One, we want to be faithful to the example of Scripture in the way that we understand it. And then two, I would say that we, to some extent, want to push back against some of what we see in the modern American evangelical church. And this is not just a modern American evangelical church thing, but but there is a tendency to want to emphasize and elevate figureheads um, to places of prominence. And um, there, there can be a little bit of this Old Testament give us a king thing. Often it can be easier to want to follow a person than it can be to want to follow Jesus because we can see that person and we can hear that person. And so there is a practice in many American churches today for there to be a sort of senior pastor or lead pastor. And so in our model, we're seeking not only to be faithful to scripture, but also to push back a little bit against that sort of CEO almost American corporate business model of doing church, while at the same time being careful in in humility to say, we don't think that that's sinful. We don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but, but in our experience, we do think there might be a little bit of a better way. So we don't have time today, unfortunately, to do like a full exposition of everything the New Testament says about this topic. Um, nor can we dig into the myriad of interpretations because there are a lot of things that people do with some of these texts. But we're uh, instead primarily going to focus on one passage of Scripture today, and that is Titus chapter 1. If you would go ahead and turn there with me, Titus chapter 1, and just keep your Bibles open because we'll look at it several times this morning. And so here's our distinctive. We are elder-led, and here's how we kind of define this. Uh, Covenant Shreveport is led by a plurality of pastor elders who each operate within their individual gifting to give leadership to an area of focus within the church. These leaders operate as peers within the organizational structure, embracing a horizontal or out-front leadership model rather than like a top-down leadership model. As such, Covenant does not have a singular senior pastor or lead pastor, but instead a pastoral team that leads and teaches. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning from Titus chapter 1. This is Paul writing here. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. 
So again, our goal today is not really to examine what other churches do um, or how other churches think about these things. And I think there's some room for there to be variety in how these things are accomplished or how they're organized or even in what they are called, so long as the role of eldership that is outlined in the New Testament is being faithfully administered. Because there are plenty of churches out there that don't have elders in name, but the role of eldership is being faithfully accomplished. It's being faithfully administered in the life of the church. And here's what I mean. So as we look at today's text, we see Paul counseling his pupil Titus to appoint elders, and the the emphasis is on the plural there, in every town under his charge. But where are we? He, He tells us we're on the island of Crete this morning, the Greek island of Crete. So if you remember a few weeks back, we explored what are called the missionary journeys of Paul. Um, Paul took three significant missionary journeys that we see in the book of Acts, and um, we talked about those a few weeks ago. If you will remember, his third missionary journey, which was also his longest, ended with him returning to uh, Judea and being arrested and imprisoned and ultimately sent to Rome to stand trial before Nero. Now, it's a convoluted story. If you remember, Paul gets shipwrecked on his way there um, on the island of Malta. Um, it's, it's a big kind of lengthy thing, but ultimately he does make his way to Rome. We don't know a lot about like what happens once he is in Rome, but it is believed, and I think this is backed up by some things we see in the New Testament, it's believed that he ultimately perhaps stood trial and is released And then from there, it is hypothesized that Paul embarked on a fourth missionary journey. If you remember, as we were studying Romans, he talked about wanting to go to Spain. It is believed that he eventually did go to Spain, that he went from Rome to Spain, and that he also, at some point, went to the Greek island of Crete with Titus. So it's believed on what it would be like a fourth missionary journey that he makes his way through Spain and then kind of comes back down through the island of Crete, which is an enormous island, by the way. It's the largest of all the Greek islands. And and so uh, Talbot School of Theology professor Dr. Kenneth Birding also thinks that Paul and Titus probably planted a lot of the churches on the island of Crete. They weren't just simply going through and like in encouraging churches and appointing elders. They were also probably planting some of these churches along the way as well. Paul ultimately leaves Crete, but he writes this letter, the letter to Titus that we're reading this morning. And he writes this letter to Titus to provide further counsel, further information, further instruction. And the big problem that they were addressing, which is just a problem for the early church in general, Uh, was false teaching. Even on the island of Crete, as they're planting these churches, as they're trying to appoint elders, as they're growing, they're also encountering false gospels. They're encountering people saying things that are not true. And so part of the idea behind appointing elders in each of these towns is to combat the false teaching that they're dealing with. And so even, even from that standpoint, the eldership, and we see this in today's text, the eldership is a defense against false gospels. You'll notice that a lot of our other scripture readings this morning have had to do with false prophets or people who've been speaking against Jesus. And the same thing was happening during Paul's time. People were saying all kinds of things. The same thing is happening today as well. So they're appointing elders in each of these towns. But where did this elder thing come from? 
Like, why is this even a thing? Why are they doing this? Well, you might be able to guess, not surprisingly, like so many things in the early church, the source of this is ultimately Judaism. Uh, We talked about baptism a few weeks ago. We talked about the baptism of Jesus. Where did baptism come from? That also came from Judaism. And if you read the Old Testament, you will repeatedly encounter two things. One, you will see that there is a massive amount of respect and deference given to older men who are, in a sense, patriarchs of families. There's all kinds of respect given to them. Their words carry a great deal of weight. Uh, Lindsay's been reading through Genesis this month, and we were listening to the Bible in the car the other day, in the end of Genesis. You may remember this, but Jacob, uh, who is also called Israel in the Bible, dies. Spoiler alert, he dies at the end of Genesis. And I mean, he's an old man, he's blind, he's, he's kind of laid up on his deathbed, and he calls his son Joseph to him, and he gives him all kinds of instructions. He blesses Joseph's two children, he says, this is where I want to be buried, this is what I want to have happen, and literally hundreds of years later, um, because Jacob blesses these two children of Joseph, Their tribes are counted among the 12 tribes of Israel as being significant tribes. And it's all because this old blind guy on his deathbed said, this is what I want to have happen. People cared about that stuff back then. When the patriarch of a family said, this is what I want, people hopped too. Like they they followed what was said. So there was all kinds of respect given to elders in Judaism, and or just in the Hebrew world in general. But then aside from that, in every tribe, in every community, the older respected men made up a group of elders that held power, that held sway. You cannot read through the Old Testament without repeatedly encountering the elders. No matter where you're reading or who you're reading about, there always seems to be a group of elders And that's true even in the time of Jesus. You see the elders pop up. And so these are senior men who hold respect and power within the community. And so this is just a facet of Hebrew culture. We live in a very different kind of culture today, don't we? We live in a culture today that is youth-obsessed. We're not obsessed with seniors. We are honestly not all that respectful as a culture towards senior adults. We are far more interested in what young people are doing. Um, We live in a culture where, to some extent, we want old people people to retire and go away. And um, sadly, that's also true in many churches I've encountered as well. Many churches where the input of senior adults is often unwelcomed by younger leadership and where it's believed that the church will be like rendered irrelevant or ineffective if senior adults have uh, a significant say in what's going on. And, and I've even seen it to the point where I think it's honestly sinful, like the, to the point where the people who should have the most wisdom are either being silenced within the church or where they've actually also bought into the notion that, no, I, I've already had my time and, and now it's time for me to kind of sit down and shut up or go away. I mean, I, I've talked to senior adults who said, no, 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 I've done my thing. It's now time for the younger folks to step up and do things. That would have been unheard of in Hebrew culture. That would have been just like beyond unbelievable in Hebrew culture. And yet that is very much how our culture functions today. In the New Testament view, though, it isn't simply age 
that qualifies one for eldership. That would have been more so the case, age, respect in ancient Hebrew culture. But in the New Testament, it isn't just age. It's not just about somebody being old, but rather it's an exhibition of spiritual, emotional, and personal maturity. In fact, Paul gives us a couple of lists of qualifications for elders in the New Testament so as to drive home the fact that this is not just a position that everybody steps into, and it's not just a a position that somebody steps into based on one's age. Um, And we saw some of this here even in the book of Titus. If you have your Bible, let's look back at verse 6. Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you'll notice there that Paul uses this phrase, above reproach, um, on a couple of instances. And that phrase doesn't mean without sin um, or without fault. It, it simply means that one can't make like an accusation about the person. Um, often the Greek word will also be translated as the word blameless. So the idea here is that if this person were to step into this position, um, that they're not somebody who is like controversial with other people or scandalous with other people. Um, If there's no one in the community that would accuse them of any sin or bring some kind of charge against them, then in the eyes of Paul, that's somebody who is above reproach. And and so he gives us some examples here in verse 6 of of what he means by above reproach. So a man who is above reproach will probably not have multiple wives, (laughs) right? Uh, So uh, the, the, the New Testament church really came out strongly against polygamy. So even though we do see at certain points in the scriptures men who have multiple wives, like from the time of Christ on, it is, it is beyond frowned upon in the church. So there's this polygamy thing, but also the New Testament church is in Jesus himself strongly against divorce. And, and so people who are getting divorced for just issues of convenience are not people who would be um, acceptable as elders within the church. So a man who's above reproach probably doesn't have multiple wives. Um, He probably hasn't been divorced multiple times. Um, He probably will have children who are followers of Jesus, who love the Lord. Uh, He and his children will probably not be guilty of the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And... um, And notice this, when Paul gives counsel on what to look for in an elder, here's here's basically what he says. Look at his family. Look at his family. Don't just look at him, but look at his family. Because for Paul, the family is like a barometer of spiritual health. And, And particularly in this culture that had a much stronger view of like male headship male spiritual leadership than maybe our culture does today, the respect of a man was measured in part by the behavior of his family, right? And you could bring great shame, great dishonor to your family if you're an insubordinate child, if you're a child that's wayward or off the rails, you could bring great shame to your father, 
Here's what Eugene Peterson says in the message. Is this man well thought of? Is he committed to his wife? Are his children believers? Do they respect him? Do they stay out of trouble? He goes on, verse 7, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he gives us this, this whole list of things. He says, look at the family, look at what's going on there. And that's not to say, guys, that having a child that doesn't know Christ or having a child that's rebellious as if that totally disqualifies somebody for eldership. But I think what Paul's getting at here is these are some guidelines that when you're looking at a person, these are the questions that you're asking. What's going on in their marriage? What's going on with their children? What's going on in their family? And, and, then, and then looking at them personally, like, are they, are they a drunk? Is that what they're known for? Are they arrogant? Are they getting angry all the time? Like, are they, are they violent? Are, are they just like somebody that seems to be greedy or money hungry? Um, are they somebody that will welcome strangers in their home? Will they even open their home? Will they serve others? Will they be hospitable? Like, do they love things that are good? Do they push back against things that are evil? Do they seem to be self-controlled or do they seem to be people who just don't have control of their body or their actions or their decisions? Like, are they upright, holy, and disciplined? These are the kinds of people that you want leading a church, Right? So in other words, is this a man who acts the right way? Again, Eugene Peterson says, it's not important that a church, it's important rather that a church leader responsible for the affairs in God's house be looked up to, not pushy, not short-tempered, not a drunk, not a bully, not money-hungry. He must welcome people, be helpful, wise, fair, reverent, have a good grip on himself. Finally, Paul says an elder must know and be able to teach the gospel. Must know and be able to teach the gospel. If you read through the qualifications for the other biblical office set out by the early church, which is the office of deacon, what you'll find is many of these qualifications are very similar. The one difference is when it comes to elders... Elders need to not only know the gospel, they need to be able to teach the gospel. And they need to be able to rebuke false gospels as well. So elders play a vital role in teaching and correction within the church. And in that sense, they are protectors of the church. And they protect it by faithfully teaching the gospel, teaching it correctly, adequately, accurately, but also dealing with anybody who would claim something that's counter to the gospel. Of Christ. And so here's a big takeaway. It seems to be the example of Scripture that this mantle should never solely fall on one man. We really just don't see that in the New Testament. Like I mentioned earlier, emphasis on the plural, the plurality of elders. Rather, this seems in all the instances where we see Paul doing this, that this is a group of men that are being appointed. And yes, I think the example of Scripture, of scripture is that this is a male role. Um, I realize that that may not jive with a lot of the way we think in modern culture today, but that certainly would have been true in a Jewish context, right? It would have, it would have most certainly been a male role in a Jewish context. And to some extent, you could say the same thing about the office of deacon as well. However, 
there is scriptural precedent for the fact that there were female deacons, such as Phoebe in the book of Romans. But with elders, we don't ever get that. We don't ever get some kind of example of a female elder in the New Testament. And honestly, as far as what we know of the history of the early church, we don't see that either. We do, however, see female deacons. And so as a church, we tend to adhere to that pattern. We're perfectly fine with female deacons. We feel like the scriptural precedent seems to be that the elder role is a male role. So here's a question that people have. Is a pastor the same thing as an elder? And the answer is yes and no. There are three Greek words that relate to this office in the New Testament. The first word is presbyteros. Think of Presbyterian, Presbyteros. The second word is episkopos. Think episcopal. And the second word is poimen, poimen. Presbyteros is the most frequently found word and is almost always translated as elder. Episkopos is also normally translated elder, but sometimes you'll see it translated as the word overseer. And those two words seem to be used interchangeably to refer to the same office. Some people might say, no, those are different things. Presbyteros is one thing, episkopos is another thing. But really, when you see them used, it seems to be the same thing that is being referred to, and that is of a teaching overseer. So even in our text today, we see both of these words. In verse 5, he said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order or put what remained into order and appoint presbyteros in every town. And then in verse 7, he says, for an episkopos, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And so it's clear, even in just this little section of Scripture, he's talking about the same thing. He hasn't transferred to some other subject, and he uses both of these words. The third word I mentioned, poimen, is the word that is really only in one place, sometimes translated as pastor. More often, it is translated as shepherd. So when you go back to the beginning of the Gospels on the night that Jesus is born and you read that the shepherds were out in their field, out in the field keeping their flock, the word poimen is used there. But then when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, we see that word again. In Ephesians 4.11, he says, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some poimen and teachers and some pastors and teachers, and some shepherds and teachers. It's really the only place in the New Testament where we see the word pastor um, sometimes rendered. And he says, Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So Paul's saying, God has given all of these different gifts to the church. He's given apostles to the church. He's given prophets to the church. He's given evangelists to the church. He's given shepherds and teachers to the church for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ might be edified. So in the original language of the words pastor and teacher, and there in Ephesians 4, they appear to be linked. Um, And and so a lot of times people will use the phrase pastor-teacher, and that's meant to indicate that maybe these aren't two completely different roles that Paul's talking about. Maybe he's saying shepherd-teacher, that a, a shepherd within the church is somebody who teaches. And so what we can say is since those words appear to be linked, is that we know elders are teachers, and so 
it stands to reason that at least some shepherds are elders, if shepherds are teachers within the church. So that may be boring to you. That may be uninteresting to you. You may not care. We have to ask the question, though, why does it matter? Why does it matter to us? And I think it matters for a couple of reasons. One, um, my experience has been that the church is simply healthier when we follow the biblical example. Um, Sometimes as we're reading this stuff that Paul is writing, we have to ask the question, is Paul being prescriptive? Is Paul saying, here's what you should do? Or is Paul being descriptive? Is he just kind of saying, here's what happened? And as we read the book of Acts, which is more of like a history book, we get more of the descriptive Because we read about Paul going to different places and establishing the church, and we learn that elders were appointed in different places. So that would be like an example of it being descriptive. When we get into Titus, when we get into the book of Timothy, it's clearly Paul saying to his students, his pupils, you need to do this. And, and so what we want to do is, is not say, hey, we have to take every single piece of that super literally and try to do it as literally as possible now 2,000 years later, but instead to say, what is the primary heart behind what he's seeking to accomplish here, and how can we best pull these things into 2021 and utilize them in the life of the church? And so what I want to emphasize this morning is, is two things as it applies to elders. First of all, I don't think the full weight of spiritual and organizational leadership should ever fall on one person. When I grew up in the church, anytime there was a new pastor or a need for a new pastor, pastoral vacancy, our church in the Baptist church, right, would always form a pastor search team, right? And this was, it was kind of an exciting thing. I don't know if you guys experienced this as kids. It was always exciting, like, who's, who are we going to get, right? And, and, and now it's up to this pastor search team. And they would always come up on stage. You'd pray for them and all that stuff. And then oh, they're off. They're off to go find our next pastor, right? And, you know, I think, I think part of the language that was used when I was a kid, and this language would be used in prayers. It would be used to talk to the congregation about the fact that we were looking for a pastor. There would be this language about God's man, I don't know if any of you guys ever experienced this before, but there would all be all this language surrounding this idea that God has a man for the local church. And the job of this committee or this team or our church is we got to go find God's man for our church. And yet I think the example of the New Testament is that God has a host of people for the local church. Like, like the leadership of the local church has never been and never should be only on one person. Now, there may be singular people who take the lead on certain things within the church. Like, like God may have somebody who is maybe the primary preacher in a certain season, or God may have somebody who takes the lead over um, discipling children in a certain season. Um, but, but never do, do I think we have the biblical latitude to say God has a man or like an anointed one for the local church. I think God brings together a host of people who are all called to bring their gifts and talents and resources to bear in accomplishing the gospel mission in a specific place. And and so whenever all of that falls on one person, 
It can be devastating. I, th- I think a lot of times when you see guys fall into sort of heinous sin um, or kind of go off the rails in pastoral ministry, if you start to dig beneath the surface, I think you will find often that way too much has been put on one person um, because no one person is all things, right? And I think a lot of guys who find themselves today in like a, the role of senior pastor or lead pastor, whatever you want to call it, feel both a self-imposed and an externally imposed pressure to be the perfect preacher, the perfect staff manager, the perfect organizational leader, a visionary, a great public speaker, somebody who's wise and everything, somebody who's a good financial administrator. Guys, no one is all of those things. You are not all of those things. I am not all of those things. And all of those things should never be placed solely on one person. So that's one thing I would take away from this this morning. Um, The second thing that I would point out, based on that Ephesians 4 passage, right, that God's given apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers to the church for the edification of the church emphasizes that there are a variety of gifts that ideally need to come to bear in the senior leadership of a church. So, so as we're getting started, right now the eldership is just me and Justin, and that's not ideal either, right? What would be ideal is that we have a larger, more robust team of elders, and that it's a team of elders that don't all look like me and they don't all look like Justin, but instead there's a variety of gifts that are coming to the table. There are people who are good at things we're not good at or who are more naturally gifted at things that we're not naturally gifted towards. And that all of that is as it should be so that the church is built up and edified. But that requires a great deal of humility, right? It's far easier to embrace sort of a CEO, top-down, you do what I say because of my positional authority type thing. Guys, that's not the church we see in the New Testament. I don't think that's how Jesus has designed things to work. It requires a great deal of humility to have a plurality of eldership rather than just one person giving directives. But humility to me seems to be the example of Jesus. It seems to be this thing with the apostles of all coming to the table, bringing experience, bringing leadings from the Lord, and seeking his face together. Rather than one man being able to claim to have special insight from God, I think all the elders should come together and seek the Lord. In other words, it's also a guard against spiritual manipulation. You've maybe seen those church environments where one person claims to be God's man or be the one who hears from God solely on behalf of the church. Hopefully, you're mature enough to know that that's not true right? We all hear from the Lord. If we seek him, we will find him. We all have the ability to hear his voice through prayer and through the reading of his word. Be careful whenever one person tries to act in that prophetic role all the time and say, thus saith the Lord, because I say so. Don't allow that to go unchecked, right? So that's the purpose of plurality. It allows one person, it doesn't allow one person rather, the ability to stand up and say, I say this, it is so, and because I said it, it's as if God said it. That opens the door for all kinds of manipulation. And sadly, we see it all the time. At the end of the day, I think the Lord has given us an incredible privilege to be called together under his banner as a church. And if we take it seriously, 
we should primarily be looking to Scripture for our cues, right, on, on how to do this thing. Um, being humble, seeking Him. And, and in the future, my prayer is that the Lord will not only continue to add to our number, but that He'll add to our number those who are being saved, and that the Lord will add to our number men who are gifted to be elders within the church, and that also we will see a robust deaconate spring up, and, and a deaconate that is, is truly serving others in the way that the New Testament paints that picture. And so that's something that will come with time, right? Those things did not all come overnight for the early church. They came gradually. And so we're going to pray that God will continue to provide us with those things while giving him praise and glory for the way that he's provided for us thus far as well. All right, let us uh, go to him in prayer this morning and give him thanks and praise. Father, we do love you, and, and God, I realize this morning that talking about things like this um, can maybe seem irrelevant in light of just some of the brokenness of our world and things like the pandemic and racial inequality. And, and so, Father, I just want to emphasize that that our primary purpose as a church is not just to be an elder-led church, but rather our primary purpose as a church is to be a gospel-centered missionary family. And so, Father, I pray that you would be um, doing the work of maturing us all, that, that we would all be growing up into Christ and taking hold of the calling that you've placed on our lives, Father. You have work that you have prepared for us, and I pray, Father, that we would all be faithful to step into that work and to do it. So we give you praise, though, for um, the example of the New Testament. I pray, Father, that in humility we would look to that and seek to model the things that we see. And God, I pray that you would continue to provide us with um, wonderful, godly leaders and servants. And Father, that that would bring you honor and glory as well. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.